this morning, and, and I actually think, not with glee, but with the understanding that it really needs to come to an end, we're about coming to the end of our very short and brief study of Matthew. It's been, I think we began in October of 16 on this, something like that. <laughs> And actually, we went through Matthew pretty quickly. But what happened was, we were moving along, and I think you would agree with that, really. What happened was, totally unplanned by me, but I believe totally orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. When we came to Gethsemane, all of a sudden, we slowed down to what might be considered a crawl. And I think we considered, I, I never, never thought about this, never would have done it this way on my own. Trust me. We would talked about Gethsemane a little bit, talked about and moved along, you know, just to kind of move through the life and ministry of Jesus. And we spent four weeks talking about Gethsemane alone. Do you remember that? And then we went to the cross and spent several weeks talking about the significance of the cross. And then we spent, I don't know how many weeks, about the significance of the resurrection. And then, what, six, eight, seven, eight weeks ago, whatever it was, we started talking about the significance of the ascension. And we're still there. Unbelievable to me. You know, I just have to marvel, not at me, not at me. This is not a me thing. I have to marvel at the Holy Spirit's orchestration and leadership of the class. And I know, for me, this has been a hugely helpful learning experience. For me, I hope it has been for you. That what God is doing is enriching and enlarging our understanding, our personal knowledge and communion with him as we have been listening to what he wants to say through a very fallible old man, but what God wants to say to us. And so if there is any approval, approbation at all, if there is any excitement, if there's any thank you, let us make sure it is directed toward the Holy Spirit. Amen? So be careful to say, man, Peter Davidson's teaching is, oh, don't ever do that. Say this, if the Holy Spirit is ministering both here and in the services, wherever. The Holy Spirit is in ministering and is teaching and is revealing. You can say through Keith or Peter or Evan or Frank or whoever. But make sure what? The emphasis is where? On whom? The Holy Spirit, okay? So we're continuing today, and today we're getting into the intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus. And the, the verse that we're going to be looking at, we may not mention it but in passing today, but we'll get into it more next week, is Hebrews 7.25, where... The Apostle Paul, or whoever writes Hebrews, but we know the author is the Holy Spirit, says that Jesus ever intercedes for us 
And so this is where we are right now in our class. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the divine intercessory ministry of Jesus, our exalted high priest. Now, remember, in ascending to heaven, you remember Jesus was seated by the Father at the right hand of majesty. The Father giving him all authority in heaven and in earth to continue the work that he had completed on earth to continue it from heaven so that the earthly ministry of Jesus in accomplishing our salvation at the cross may be able to be given to and continue in his people. So the finished work of redemption is now the continuing work of applying, guarding, maintaining, maturing, and bringing that redemptive work of Christ to its final fruition when Jesus returns, correct? So that's what we're talking about. So now, as the heavenly man, and as the apostle Paul puts it, the man from heaven, as the heavenly man, Jesus Christ has been declared to be this. And I'm going to do some background work in here because I don't want to get, I don't feel the Holy Spirit wanted me to start just intercession of Jesus, but let's look at him and let's look at some of the background and some of the reasons why this is going to be happening and why we can depend upon him as our heavenly eternal intercessor. So now he has been given all rule over God's kingdom. Now as the heavenly man, Jesus Christ has been declared to be the true Davidic king. Now you see, I have a reference there to second Samuel seven thirteen and 14. When I give references, I hope that maybe some of you will have the time to look them up. But you remember in 2 Samuel, the Lord appears to David, speaks to David, reveals to David. And he says, look, I'm going to establish your kingdom, a dynasty that will come from you. A ruler will come from you and he will establish my kingdom forever and ever and he will be your son and so that is obviously taken in the immediate context Solomon you remember and in the rule of Solomon Israel was never greater it was absolutely the greatest it had ever been and when you begin to look at Solomon the description of God given to Solomon and of the nation it is eschatological uh, terminology. What do we mean by that? It is terminology that has to do with a coming kingdom. This kingdom is at peace. This kingdom is filled with riches. This king is glorious. Well, all that is true to a limited extent concerning Solomon and his rule in Israel, but it is fully realized when when the man of God, the son of David, the son of man, sits on the throne and establishes his kingdom over all forever. And then the rule of God's peace and the rule of God's joy, the, the communion with God, the whole issue of a great kingdom forever is established. That's the eschatological fulfillment. Eschatology meaning the issue of last things, you know, the return of the Lord. So Jesus is sitting on a throne. He is the true Davidic king. He's also 
Remember in John 1, 29, what does John call Jesus? As he sees Jesus walking, what does he say in John 1, 29? Behold the Lamb of God. He who sits on the throne is the Lamb of God who has died so that the Father's glory would be able to be manifested in his redeemed people. Remember, always let us keep in mind, the absolute purpose in all of this is the Father's glory as manifested in communion with his people. The bottom line of all of this is the Father's glory as manifested in communion with his people. That's what God is after. That's why we have Genesis 1-1 all the way through to the end of Revelation 22. It's all about the Father's glory as manifested in his redeemed people in communion with them, a communion of relational love. That's the essence of what this Bible is all about. That's why the Son of God has been sent. That's why the Son of God died. That's why the Son of God has sent the Holy Spirit. That is the purpose of the Holy Spirit, to guard and promote and mature that work, that will, that purpose of God. So in the end, at the end of all things, finally, all things are gathered together for the glory of God the Father. This one who sits on the throne is also the living temple of God in whom his people are forgiven. How much are we forgiven of? How much? How much? I like that word all. How much? All. How much sin has God forgiven us of? All. Every sin that God... I'll never get through if I do this. Every sin that God knows about, he has forgiven in Christ. Amen? Now, remember this. The sin that he knows about begins when? When we are conceived. We are conceived in sin. Do you get that? We're conceived with what we call it. What is it called? Original or inherited sin. We are conceived in sin. It doesn't mean that what your mom and your dad did was sinful. But it means that the inheritance of the nature that is passed through human relationships is a nature of sin. By children, the wrath of God. I mean, by children. Now, I've said it wrong in Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3, but whatever. That means from the beginning when you were conceived, when I was conceived, were we before that? Were we before that? No, we didn't exist before that. So that's the beginning of our existence. Contrary to what the world says, we're a human being at that moment. At the point of conception, we're human beings. Amen? Amen? Right, 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 right. And to the moment we take our last breath, because after I die, I can't sin anymore. How much is gathered up into the cross of Christ? Everything that God knows about. How much does he know about? Everything. Therefore, everything is forgiven. There's no sin that God doesn't know about. And everything he knows about, he's put into Christ. And everything that God knows about that has been born by Christ is paid for at the cross. We must get this because the accuser will accuse us of sin. And when he accuses, have you ever been accused of sinning? Anybody not been accused of sinning? And all of a sudden, what do we do? 
we first realize that sin is forgiven. Why is it forgiven? Because you ask for forgiveness? Some teach, if you don't ask for forgiveness, you will not be forgiven. We are forgiven completely and eternally in Christ. So when I am convicted of sin, I have to remember it's a forgiven sin. And then that allows me the freedom of joy and safety to confess, yes, you're right, Father, and then to repent, to ask God for the power to turn away from that sin. Correct? I repent not to be forgiven, but because I am forgiven or have been forgiven, I therefore can repent. Right? You got it? Okay. He's also the victorious seed. Remember the seed of the woman. He's the one who was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 to what? Crush Satan as to his head. He will break the authority of Satan at the cross. Satan's authority over us is broken once and for all at the cross. Never to be reestablished. Victorious seed of the woman who destroyed the work of Satan. Remember, for the Son of God has appeared for this purpose for what? To destroy the works of Satan. He's also, this one who sits on the throne is the humble servant of God. You have the references in your notes, don't you? He, the humble servant of God, who endured the suffering of death and is now exalted as the divine servant of God on behalf of God's people. I mean, let this soak in. Let this soak in. That the eternal Son of God, the creator of the universe, as the Father's agent of creation, has become a human being and has endured all the suffering and the penalty for the filth that was in us. He came as our servant to serve us the love of God by carrying away the wrath of God. Correct? To serve us the love of God by carrying away the wrath of God. And he is now exalted in his humanity at the right hand of the Father. So that in this exalted man, the nature of the eternal Son and the nature of humanity are continue to be existing, coexisting, not that they are both separate, not to be confused with one another or osmosized into one another, but they are two distinct natures. And the Son of God ever forever remains the servant of God, serving our needs before the throne of God. Now, what kind of a God is this who defers like that? At, uh, what's the name of that school? Where I go? Where do I go on Sunday during the week? What gym? What's the name of the school? Loyola. And there was a one of the, you know, they have cleaning people. There was a lady cleaning. 
And I said, you ever been called a servant? And she looked at me with, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, uh, yes, indeed. I've been, ever, people think of you as a servant, yeah, you know, you could see, yeah, yeah, wh- you know, whatever. I said, that is the greatest title you could ever, what do you mean? And I just quickly shared, Jesus is God's servant to us. And you are serving. You should have seen a face. I said, the next time someone calls you a servant or treats you like a servant. And I have problems with people treating, not me so much. I have problems people treating my wife like a servant. With me, it's not as bad. But when they treat you like a servant and they call you a servant, say what? You're right. You're right. I am a servant. Then they don't know what to do with that. Then they may ask you, well, why did you just say that? Then you have a marvelous opportunity, what, A.J., to explain to them the gospel of God's serving us, the gospel. This man is also the divine bridegroom of the church. He's also a heavenly high priest who ever represents us before the throne of God through his eternal ministry of intercession. <clears throat> and I want you to see that the word representation and intercession intertwinedly, because that's what we're going to be dealing with uh, to a, in a good bit, in, in a week or so, to a good extent. Now, as we begin to look at the intercessory ministry of Jesus, our exalted high priest, we need to remember that Jesus reveals the significance of Israel's high priest. In this man is fulfilled the significance of the high priest of Israel. Remember what does Colossians 2.17 say? That Jesus is what? The fulfillment or the completion. That means in that little verse, the Holy Spirit has given Paul a little verse that sums up the entire ministry and purpose and work of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament as pertaining to God and his promises and his work is about Christ coming, which Jesus himself fulfills in his incarnational ministry upon the earth. And he continues to apply that fulfillment in his intercessory ministry from heaven. In Exodus, remember, 19 through 24, after Yahweh constitutes Israel as his holy nation, he creates the priesthood. Why? Why does he create a priesthood? He said, you're my nation. And he creates them as a nation. As quickly, do you notice first that God creates Israel as his nation? Why? Because Israel is his son. Remember in Exodus 4? And I can't remember the verse right offhand. He says, my son. Israel is my son when talking about Pharaoh's capture of Israel. Israel being in bondage in Egypt. My son. He calls Israel his son. That's a relational term. It's not a uh, uh, physically generational term. It's a relational term. My son. Do you notice that God sees Israel as his son? Not because Israel first called on God. Do, Do you notice that? It's not that we first call on God and then he saves us. It's that he first calls us into his love and by his love. To which we respond in our reciprocal, if you would, call on him. Right? And so, God 
has called Israel to be his son. When? Before the foundation of the world. And then he declares that call in Abraham through promises. And then he has all of these people in Egypt, 450 or 30 so years later, in Egypt under bondage. And they begin crying out, relieve us, help us. And then the Lord sends Moses, you see, to what? Bring them out of bondage unto himself at the mountain of Sinai, Mount Horeb. And he constitutes them as his holy people, as a nation. By giving them the Ten Commandments, they agree to this. And a covenant is made at Sinai in Exodus 19 to 24. And a priesthood is established. Why? Because the people are not going to be obedient. And so the priesthood is established first to make the people fit for the presence of God through the administration of the sacrificial system. Now that's the primary purpose of the priesthood, to make the people fit, to come into the presence of God safely. If they don't come into the presence of God through the shedding of blood, that's what happens. They must be fit, and they made fit through a sacrificial system. And then also, the priest, the, um, the, uh, the responsibility of the priest instruct the nation in their walk as God's holy people. And then the priest is given the responsibility to intercede for the spiritual and physical welfare of the nation. And so, I'm going to skip the next little group, but during the earthly ministry of Jesus, he fulfills these three responsibilities. He does these three. We see that, and you can see it in your notes. And so Jesus' intercessory ministry is primary. Do you remember in Luke 22? I think that's in your notes, Luke 22. And in Luke 22, Jesus is saying, I'm going away. I'm going to be crucified. Remember? And the apostle Peter, what? It'll never happen. It'll never happen. As long as I'm here, that'll never happen. And what does Jesus say? Peter. Peter. Simon. Satan has. Do you have the scripture? Any of you remember what it says? Desire. But it's stronger than desire. Demanded. It's stronger than desire. Look at this. Look at this verse. Satan has demanded what? Permission. Have you ever thought of that? To do what? To sift you as wheat. But I have interceded. I have stood between you and the attacks of Satan as representing the purpose of God. That will not be overcome through Satan's attacks. Do you get this? Are you with me this morning on this? Do you see it in your own life? I have prayed for you. That what? Notice what it says. That you not deny me. Do you see that? Do you see that? He didn't say, I prayed for you, Nick, that you won't say those nasty things to your wife. I have prayed for you, Eddie, that you not think that way. I have, no, he says, I have prayed that your faith fail not. 
then what does he say? Look at the confidence of Jesus. What's the next verse or part of the verse? And what does it say? If you do okay. Come on, follow me on this. This is extremely important the way we live our lives. If you do okay, Darlene, if you do okay, I'm hoping you'll be all right. Does it say that? What does he say? When? When you are converted, Herman. When? Oh, that we could see that the disobedience of Peter could not and will never be able to overcome the purpose of God. Can't happen, won't happen. When you are converted, you will do what? What? You will do what? What is the next word? Strengthen your brethren or brothers. The power had Jesus not prayed for them. And by the way, in John 17, 20 to 26, he prays for us. In John 17, 1 through 5, he talked about the Father's glory. In 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples. And then 20 to 26, he prays for us. Remember John 17, the great intercessory prayer. Had Jesus not prayed for Peter, do you believe Peter would have survived? Impossible. Because Jesus' prayer was in accordance with God's eternal will to save and use this man as apostle. Do you see it? His prayer was in accordance to the will of God. And if you ask anything according to his will, he hears. And if he hears, what? We know that we have the petitions that we ask of him. Somebody said that somewhere to someone. Look in 1 John. You'll see it in there. To summarize, Jesus is the exalted heavenly man who eternally represents us before God the Father. As long as Jesus remains in the throne of God as the exalted Son of God, Son of Man. As long as Jesus remains before the throne of God, in the throne of God and on the throne of God, we are maintained. If it could be possible that Jesus no longer sits before the Father, we are doomed forever. Amen? We are not in heaven. We are, obviously we know we're not in heaven because of ourselves, but we are maintained in the kingdom of God on the basis of a man who ever represents us, whoever intercedes for us. Correct? Intercession is much more than just Jesus asking something. It is literally representing in himself his people has risen in him. So how secure are you? If you worry about your security, if you worry about whether you will get through, you are as secure in Christ as the Son of God himself is secured in the throne. 
Now, how much security do more do you need? You see, we have to take our eyes off primarily the issue of me and my. And we have to put it on thee and thy. Because the issue is in God himself. Who has raised up this man. To be our eternal intercessor. Forever. And the seal of that. We see in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. The Holy Spirit is what? The seal of our redemption. What does that mean? That means the person of the Holy Spirit is given to us to bring us experientially in my, I've been saved in my knowledge, experientially into the good of my union with Christ. And then produce in me the continuing reality that I am in Christ. I am kept in the love of God as the Holy Spirit works in me and with me and too often against me so that I will be what? Maintain until when? The coming of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is on earth to ensure that he who sits in the heavens that his work is secured forever. Do you see the the connection here? The necessity of the trinity, the triunity of God. And why all this? All of it for the glory of the Father's, for the manifestation of the Father's glory in the communion of the saints as we are in communion with God himself forever. As our heavenly prophet, Jesus is the living word who teaches us how to walk in godliness by the Spirit. As a heavenly high priest, Jesus ever lives. Oh, I've said that. So let's look at, let me run down the credentials of Jesus. Because you really must ask, well, does Jesus have the right credentials to do this? What are his credentials? You know, someone says, look, I'm in the police department. Hopefully you're going to ask him what? Show me what? Show me your credentials. Dwayne, right? Show me what? Show me your badge to do something. Show me that you have the authority to do what you say you're going to have. So do we know his credentials? We really need to know these things. So I think there's a list of, I can't remember how many, five or six of them. Now, I don't know whether this is exhaustive. Nothing in this class is exhaustive except me sometimes at the end of it <laughs> so what what are jesus credentials first and primarily and comprehensively his credentials first of all is his divinity if you can't remember anything else about the credentials of jesus the first two must be remembered his divinity his divinity 
Remember Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, what? The Son of God. You see, the Bible, the New Testament, insists on the divinity of Jesus. How does Mark 1.1 start? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And for the next many chapters, he proves that through these actions and this authoritative work of this man. When was Jesus declared to be the Son of God? When? 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 When he was at the cross? No. Jesus was not declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be a man who died. Let's get it right. He wasn't declared to be... Who, who, who says that man on the cross because he says, I am from the Father? Who says so? Who are you? Where's your proof? There's no proof that Jesus is from God and that Jesus' love is God the Father's love for me at the cross. Until when? It is the proof. But when is the proof manifested in the resurrection? Do we get that? Without the resurrection, that man died in vain and we're not saved. You must read chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. On the third day, Romans 1, 4. It doesn't say on the third day, but that's the what Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I have other scriptures there, Psalms, and you can see that. Psalm 2, 7. Yahweh, or the Lord. Remember, in your Old Testament, it says the Lord as the personal name of God 6,400 times. Yahweh. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. You are my son. At Jesus' baptism, you remember in Matthew 3, 17, also in Luke chapter 3. What? You're my son. My agapitos, the son of my love. So what's the first proof of his credential as our heavenly high priest who can intercede for us effectively forever? What's the first proof? What is it? He's divine. He's the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Second proof is this. And, and, and on these two legs walk everything. Everything else is an outworking of the first two. Everything else is an outworking of the first two. Here are the two legs. His humanity. His humanity. The Bible doesn't stress the divinity over the humanity or the humanity over the divinity. It puts both together. And in this man we see God's work, the divine work in a human being, the human work within a divine context. That's what we see in Jesus. Jesus' humanity. Remember in John 1, 4, well, John 1, 1, what? In the beginning was the Word, remember Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You need to get these verses. These are critical verses. In the beginning, just like in Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, if John stopped there, then we have two gods, and the Word was God. Then in verse 14, what does it say? And the Word became incarnate, in socks, in flesh, and the Word became what? Flesh. And what else does it say? Among us. Where? Among us. And we 
beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten, the unique, one of a kind. Monogamous means one of a kind. Only begotten son of the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. That's the incarnation, that verse. First Timothy 2.5 is, if any of you ever call Donnie Bourgeois, you're going to hear this verse on the uh, recording. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. Who? The man, Jesus Christ. The man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is a real human being. Third, his perfection. Now that we've established the two primary criteria, now come how does that criteria work out? What do we see of the activity of the divine man? What is the importance of the activity of this divine man? First of all, and primarily, his perfection. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted such as we, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted to sin. Make sure you get this right. He was not tempted. Come on. By sin. He was tempted externally to sin. Externally to sin. A day if I say to you, why don't you steal this? That's an external temptation. Being tempted by sin is on the inside of me. Hey, I'd like to steal that. Do we see the difference? We are tempted both sides. Jesus was only tempted on the exterior. The sin that was tempting him never penetrated his heart and mind and soul even once. Never. Jesus never, ever experienced being a sinner or sinning. Some teach that at the cross, Jesus became a sinner. Very, very, very wrong. He became the sin bearer, the one who judicially was declared sinful so that judicially he could bear the payment of our sin so that we could judicially be declared the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, innocent, unstained, unstained, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This is his credential. Pages won't turn here. Remember Jesus and the Pharisees, and they accused him. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Show me the sin. Show me where I sin. Had they been able to show him where they sin, he sinned, he could not have been the Messiah. Show me where I sin. Show me. He doesn't sin in breaking man-made rules. That's not sin. There's nothing pertaining to the will of God and the obedience of the will of God, especially as is contained within the commandments of God, that Jesus sin. There's without sin. Next one, Jesus sacrifice. He's the son of God. He's a human. He's without sin. And he dies for our sin. Because he is without sin, therefore he can be the perfect, efficacious sacrifice. Had he sinned once, he could never have borne our sin to the cross. 
Behold the Lamb of God. Remember the sacrifice. Matthew one twenty one. The angel tells Joseph what? You're going to call Mary's son what? Jesus. Yahshua. Because he will save his people from their sin. Why does Jesus come to save us from our sin? So that we can be incorporated into the family of God forever. The purpose of Jesus primarily was not to save us from our sin. It was to incorporate us into the communion with God the Father by saving us from our sin. You got that? Jesus' ascension. Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of the Father. And there are other verses here. You can look at them. Had Jesus not ascended, we wouldn't be here today. <clears throat> Had Jesus not ascended and given authority to send the Holy Spirit, God's will particularly would have been accomplished because his glory would be manifested in a man. That's what God is all about. But God's will was not confined to one. It was to be distributed to how many? Thousands. Thousands. That's why you immediately begin to see in Genesis one twenty-eight, go out and what? Multiply and fill the earth. That's why with Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of what? Nations. Why all this people stuff? Because God's kingdom is established in one man in whom all his people may be part of the kingdom. Correct? So his will is technically accomplished in the resurrection. But there was more to the will than just a man. He would have all of us there. So in the ascension, we are brought in. Apart from the ascension, we would never have been brought in. And sixth, the coronation. Jesus is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. So we've done a little background work. So next week, what we're going to start doing, hopefully next week, we'll be looking at the intercessory ministry of Jesus. But really, the intercessory ministry of Jesus, and I don't want to go on and on about this, a major in, as connected to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But next week, as we do that, I want to, I, I just feel compelled by the Lord. I wasn't going to do this again. I wasn't going to do it until this week. I already had things moving along, you know what I mean? I want to stop for a moment and talk about something, hopefully, that we don't consider as to the primary function and purpose of intercession. Because usually when we think of intercession, we think about just praying for somebody, praying and getting answers. Well, that's part of it, but that's a minuscule part. That's not the major part of intercession. So see you next Sunday.